Welcome to episode 60 of the Fertility Podcast. Nice round number. If this is your first time listening, a really warm welcome from me, Natalie, your host. The Fertility Podcast is for you if you found your route to parenthood hasn't been as straightforward as you'd hoped. What I intend to do is speak to experts as well as tell real stories from people that are on their own fertility journey and those that have been on it and their lives have changed. Either they've started a family or they've chosen to carry on their family childless. And the whole point of this podcast is it's a safe place for you to get some information, to hear somebody's story that will hopefully resonate with you, to make you realize that A, it's not your fault, whatever is going on with you, and B, you're not alone. One in six couples are affected by fertility issues and it's 50-50. Both men and women are affected. And the more and more I do this podcast and the more of the variety of people I speak to, we all still go through it on our own a lot of the time. Some of us really put ourselves out there and we gain support either online or in support groups actually in person but so many of us don't and I was just talking to a girlfriend of mine last night who had fertility treatment for twins and we were just talking about how neither of us looked for support in forums and online because we were lucky we had each other to talk to but that that was it and whilst it was amazing there's still that desire to just know more isn't there constantly you're so informed if you're on a fertility journey I know you're probably looking always online at different stuff that that is out there this podcast is another thing for you to consume and I hope you enjoy it so it's just been National Fertility Awareness Week in the UK I'm talking to you in November 2016 and I went to the fertility show and I went to the fertility show for the first time now I was pleasantly surprised with how I didn't find it as overwhelming as I thought. I mean I was obviously there with a different hat on because I've been through fertility treatment so I'd be really interested to hear from you if you went as to what you thought. Was it a positive experience? Would you go again? I was queuing outside actually because I was there as a Kino early bird and there were some people around me who weren't happy queuing even though we always queue Brits we're never happy are we? And I was going to start talking, if you were in the queue waiting to go into the fertility show, I was going to start talking, but I just didn't know whether you'd want little old me going, hello, I make a podcast, what are you hoping to get from today? So I didn't. But I did have a couple of chats at the show. I didn't feel happy getting my microphone out and wandering around quizzing people. And I'm sure if you were there, you're probably glad that I wasn't putting a mic in your face. But I chatted to Anya Sizer, who is now working with Fertility Network UK. She's a lovely lady and has a fascinating story to tell. So have a listen to Anya. So I'm sat on the Fertility Network UK beautiful newsstand, having just launched their new website at the Fertility Show with Anya Sizer. Hello. Hello. Lovely to speak to you. How do you think the show's gone so far? Yeah, very well. Um, I think it's a really good mixture of um, clinics and complementary therapies. I think we've had a lot of really good chats with people on the stand about what we do um, and the talks have been well received. So yes, I think it's going well. Now the talks were a bit different, you were saying. It was a bit like silent disco from wearing uh, headsets. It's quite interesting though, so I suppose it blocks out any surrounding noise and people can focus. Yeah, I think they've changed it a bit this year in that last year was more open plan and uh, people could listen out on the edges of the talk and that's a little bit off-putting for the speakers and then I guess loses the sense of it being quite a unique event. So this year they've got um, all of the audience with headphones on so that they can really hear very, very clearly what the speaker's saying and they're sort of more sectioned off so it feels a little bit more intimate I think. 
Now, there's also the Q&A stage. You were chairing some sessions. Yes, yes, I did um, a chairing of overseas treatments looking at Spain and um, Las Vegas. So very interesting and why people would choose to go there rather than stay in the UK and looking at some of the issues around that. And are people quite forthcoming with their questions? Actually, it was surprisingly quiet. I think a few people stayed to speak to them afterwards. The two main speakers were very good, and so maybe most of the questions were answered. But I think it was good in terms of we managed to talk to them about the anonymity issues and get them thinking maybe a little bit more about some of the long-term implications about when you go abroad. So I think it was a useful session. It just finished far quicker than I was expecting. Time flies when you're having fun. Yes. And what about the Q&A stage in general, because it's a new addition to this year's show? Do you think that it's given people more of a chance to ask questions? I hope so, because I think that's got to be a part of what this event is. Um, So it seems to, it seems to be more within the framework of what is expected there rather than just to go and listen to a talk. I think people come to the Fertility Show with such a huge amount of questions and thoughts that to have those areas where they can explore things is really useful. So let's talk about your new role at Fertility Network UK because you were previously at London Women's Clinic running support groups. In fact, somebody that I've spoken to on this podcast was travelling from outside London to your support group just just to be with you. So your reputation (laughs) precedes you. So tell me about what you're doing now with Fertility Network UK. I was still running support groups, thank goodness, because I love doing that. So I'm the regional rep and it means visiting lots of different kinds of clinics, which is so lovely. I really enjoy seeing all the NHS clinics and the private clinics and the different styles so there's a lot of clinic visits there's some media work there's focusing on the fertility fairness campaign and trying to lobby for the nice guidelines to be implemented Uh, it's a really really diverse job and um, it just is wonderful I'm really really enjoying being here and just talk a bit about your story because you've got an interesting fertility story to share as well yep about 13 years ago, no, no, more than that, about 14, 15 years ago, we found out there was an issue and we ended up going down the IVF route. All in all, we had six years of IVF and uh, our first treatment was successful and our fifth cycle was successful. Uh, But at its worst, we were genuinely given odds of one in 125,000 of it ever working. So we feel incredibly lucky, but we wanted to still have another child and look at uh, ways to further our family and adoption for us always felt a really positive option and so about four years ago we adopted a little boy and uh, yeah he's been with us now about three three and a half years and uh, it's exhausting but amazing so we feel very very lucky. Because do you think that there is enough of a connection with people who have had struggles to start their own family and maybe they've had failed fertility treatments to then look at adoption or do you think the tendency is to just shut down how from your experience how have you seen the transition to then thinking okay there's another there's another way and an adoption is the way that we want to go yeah. i think um, with adoption people often think about it a lot a lot in advance of when they actually take the plunge to adopt um, so often when you get the diagnosis of infertility people begin exploring many options, so surrogacy, donation, adoption, and certainly I think they start exploring the pros and cons of it, maybe then go through a few cycles, this is often what happens, not always, but uh, maybe go through a few cycles, and then finally come to the conclusion that actually that that's the better of the options for them. 
And it is very much a movement from one world to another. Both are routes to parenthood and both are really good routes to parenthood, but you have to be incredibly resilient to adopt. And actually, often after treatment, you're quite weather-beaten and worn down. And the movement from one to another is, is quite a sensitive one, actually. And for me, in some ways, the whole process of feeling like an infertile person or someone that can't conceive, adoption doesn't always magic that feeling away. But what it does do is provide you with a really good, strong option to become parents. But I think the, the difficulty is when we feel that it will solve everything. And adoption is, is amazing, and I, I would always advocate for it. But it's certainly not easy, and it doesn't take away years of hurt after treatment. And what about the support? Because I've talked a lot on this podcast about the support and the counselling that's available with fertility treatment. What is there with regards to adoption? Is, is there not that, that level of support? There is support out there, but you have to find it. And it really varies from person to person. I've heard of people who've adopted and then been given this amazing care package afterwards. But actually, the majority of people I know, they adopt and then they're sort of left to it. And now there are amazing resources and organizations out there to help with adoption but actually it, again it goes down to the individual couple or person just being proactive and saying that we need the support and the problem is when you're given a child that's quite traumatized quite upset anyway for you to have the self-reserves and the self-realization to know that you need support actually that takes quite a lot um, I don't think I realized that I needed support for several months and, and by that point I'd got into quite a difficult place. I wish, if I had a magic wand, I wish that every couple would adopt and then there would be a support package there and then for them because I do think it really makes all the difference. But unfortunately at the moment it's still down to us as individuals to facilitate that. So what advice would you give with both your Fertility Network UK hat on and what you've just described from your own story for anybody who's listening who's struggling to start a family whether it's seek out the support get involved with online forums if they're not happy to do it face to face so i'd say to acknowledge that this is a scenario that needs help a lot of help i think that's normal and it's understandable and and that should be your default setting rather than thinking oh, i'll just trug on on my own and i'll do this through gritted teeth i think i just tell people to stop take a deep breath and then look at what support they need because this really is a big life event, uh, one of the biggest ones you will go through. So for me, I would just say, okay, what do you need? How can you help yourself? Who will help you? Um, and then it's all about kindness. It's all about really being as kind to yourself as possible, not expecting too much, uh, not forcing yourself up to put on that brave face when there's another Facebook pregnancy announcement. Just being kind, being really honest. I think find a new network if you need to. If, if your old group of friends doesn't always get it, find a, a group of friends that do. Um, I'm not saying to isolate yourself from old friends, but you may well need people that just comprehend what you're going through. So I'd say look for that support structure. Support groups are wonderful ways to help yourself. Um, and then just keep going. You know, find the ways to keep going. Find the reserves. Um, however you can look for support and help and just don't be afraid to ask come and speak to the fertility network we're here to help it's it's just an incredible thing to go through very very difficult and know that you're not alone yeah majorly we're not alone you know you look around today it's so busy one in six couples go through this we know this in our heads but yeah actually the feeling is of isolation 
And I think it takes bravery and tenacity to, to really take on board that we're not alone. But that is the truth, and it's plugging into the resources that are there. Just finally, I want to ask you about the Hidden Faces campaign that Facility mm. Network uh, UK have been running, because I've just you know, loved seeing the videos, yeah. and I just think it's so fascinating that people, I, I suppose, in some ways assume they might know what someone who's had fertility yeah. trouble would look like. How do you feel the campaign's gone? I'm so proud of this campaign. Honestly, it's been one of the absolute privileges of my work to be involved with it. Um, and I think why it works for me so well is exactly what you've just said in that I think IVF has become more talked about in the media, in the public, but not always from a truthful um, foundation. So people think they know what IVF is like and they certainly think they know the woman that goes through it and they think it's this lifestyle option of a wealthy 40 year old. That's the, that's the image that they get of it. When actually it's about people of massive cross-section of society that have just been dealt this, this um, hand in life. So the people that we interviewed were people that have known from their teens or people that knew in their 20s or uh, people that have chosen actually their better option is to stop treatment. It's a really wide cross-section of people. Um, and I think that's what I really loved about the campaign, not just that people were incredibly brave and honest in sharing their story, but I think it really stopped the myth of this 40-something career woman, which drives me crazy. You know, there's a small proportion of people that have been following this career path and that's why they waited longer. But actually, the majority of people, life has just meandered and gone down different paths and maybe they haven't met someone till later or maybe they have a very big medical issue. There's loads of reasons why people end up in treatment and it's certainly not just a 40-something glittering career path that's, that's held people back. So I'm really proud of this campaign and I think it will make a big difference. I think so and I'm going to continue to share lots of links on the show notes for the podcast. Anya, thank you for your time. I'll let you go another talk this afternoon, haven't yes, you? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's lovely to see you here. I also chatted to Vanessa Smith from the London Women's Clinic. She was about to give a talk and it was really interesting what she was talking about, about egg and sperm donors and all sorts of issues that go with if you are thinking of donating or working with a donor. How are you, Vanessa? Very well, thank you. I'll be doing a talk about egg and sperm donation in the UK. So we were just talking about birth certificates as a place to start. It never even occurred to me that it could be something that goes on a birth certificate. Is that where the discussion is now heading as far as donors are concerned? Well, recent research has shown how important it is that people know their true identity. And for a lot of people, particularly those that are donor-conceived, they feel that to be able to build a picture of their lives right from the beginning, they need to know who their donor is. And therefore, obviously, the most obvious place to start with documentation, you need a birth certificate for so many different things, you know, getting a passport, you know, sometimes you need it to apply for university. And a lot of discussion is with regards to whether donor-conceived people should be allowed to show that they're donor-conceived on their birth certificate in a similar way to adoption certificates. Obviously, it's a bit complicated because some donor-conceived people are from anonymous donors. What, what would they write on their birth certificate if we don't know who the donor is? Um, and also, what about the rights for the donor? When they donate, they're donating for the donation purposes, not to be a, become a parent. Just explain a bit about how the laws have changed in the UK, because it's quite recent, the change at 18, about the anonymity laws. Actually, the laws changed in 2005. It's just that times passed very quickly. The real concern was that um, in 2005 we had sperm, but we didn't have enough sperm 
to go around for all the people that needed it. This was obviously also the case for egg donation as well, but in 2005, not so many people were using donor eggs. Now, the concern was, was that if the Department of Health brought in this new um, law about anonymity not being allowed, that the number of donor sperm available would decrease to the same level as donor eggs. That hasn't proved to be the case. What's actually happened is the types of donors that come forward have changed. Also, um, clinics have now started taking more responsibility for recruitment, you know, investing more money, making donors feel more important, so improving facilities, for example. It's no longer the case where donors used to come to clinics and go in the, through the back door. Now facilities are built so that they can sit, relax, eat pizza, you know, hang out and feel really valued. Um, also, in some European countries, you can use, still use anonymous donors, but there's been a lot of research done, particularly by the, center, uh, the Cambridge Centre for Family Research, which looks, which looks into the importance of anonymity, how that is for the children, but also whether it's important for parents to have the option to have an anonymous donor or an ID release donor. Now, when they changed the law, the idea was, was that all children would be made aware of who their donor was, but the reality is a lot of parents still won't tell their kids if their donor conceived. So I guess we're going to have to see how it works. There's been a few donors that um, donated prior to 2005 who have changed their status. So where previously they were anonymous, they're now ID release. So there are some um, young adults who are almost at the age where they're going to be able to find out the details of the donor, despite the fact that the law didn't change 18 years ago. I mean, there's such a lot, I think, that people don't quite realise, like you were just saying, about how the donor's treated alongside all the laws and legalities about it. So what will people be finding out in your talk today? Okay, well, what I want to do in the talk, I'm, I'm talking mainly about egg donation, is what I want to do is reassure people about the donors that are recruited in the UK. The laws are really strict in the UK. We, you know, we have really strict regulation from the HFEA, which you know makes our job a little bit harder, but makes the quality of donors so much better. You know, what I'm going to talk about is the screening, the counselling, what kind of people come forward. We've done a lot of data analysis looking at like the age groups of donors that come forward, the education status, so whether they went for a degree or whatever. Um, I think it's also important to realise the majority of people who have egg donation tend to be highly educated women who maybe would be in the 40s. So what they want from a donor is really important. They perhaps want someone with an education background who's got lots of interest, something that they feel that they can pass on to their children, but also more accurately reflects who they are as a person, so it makes them feel more connected with the donor. And so what I'm hoping to do is reassure people that egg donation is okay, that donors are nice people wanting to do a good thing, but can match your personalities as well. Now, you mentioned the counselling, and there is implications counselling that goes along with if you are having a egg donations. Explain a little bit about the counselling that goes along with when somebody's working with a donor. So, the HFEA says that offering counselling is mandatory for all donors. They don't say that you have to give them counselling, but it has to be offered. Now, we obviously encourage our donors to come for counselling because it's not just about now, it's not just about the period of donation. So, for an egg donor, you know, the couple of months that they're coming to the clinic it's more about the long-term implications so how will they feel if a child wants to meet them when they're 18 how will their partner feel how will their own children feel and all of these things discussed in the counseling session now unfortunately and we find this with sperm donors as well they have their counseling and they decide actually I don't actually want to donate obviously by that stage we've spent quite a lot of money recruiting them screening them and things but but in reality Donors that aren't 100% sure about what they're doing, it's important that we pick that up now, not in 18 years' time when they're reluctant to meet any children they've helped produce. Is there uh, an obvious place people can go to find out if they're thinking of becoming a donor? Well, 
there is. Um, I obviously I work for the London Women's Clinic, and we've got an egg bank called the London Egg Bank, um, which is very visible on social media and on the internet and things like that. So that's an easy place to go to. You can also go to the HFEA. They can tell you clinics that are offering donation services. Um, but basically, if you Google, I want to be an egg donor or a sperm donor, there's loads and loads of options. Unfortunately, the National Sperm Bank, that actually um, hasn't been doing as well and it's been put on hold. So if you're up in the north, it'll be a bit more difficult to find a big organisation. But what you should do is you should approach your local fertility clinic and they'll be able to either offer you services to donate or suggest somewhere close by that you can go to. And just age-wise, because there, there is age restrictions out there on donors, so just give me an idea of uh, egg and sperm, the, the kind of age brackets that people are eligible to donate. So with sperm donors, the age bracket is 18 to 42. Now the reason for that is because it's thought that the genetic complement within the sperm um, goes a bit downhill as you hit your 40s. It was up to 45 until a couple of years ago, and now it's been down to 42. Most clinics prefer people to be in their 20s than at 18 because it feels like quite a big decision to make when you're so young. But legally, it's 18 to 42. With regards to egg donation, it's slightly different. Again, you can be if, if you're 18, you're eligible, but you have to have completed your treatment, so your production of the eggs, by your 36th birthday. So most people won't recruit egg donors if they're oh. far into their 35th year, just because we need to make sure we get the donation completed before their birthday. Thank you, Vanessa. Good luck with your talk. Now, I'll put details of both those lovely ladies on the show notes, which in this case are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Anya, just because it's nice and easy. And next week's episode is going to be looking at the male factor once again. I caught up with Tom Webb, who has his own story, as always, to tell. And he's the director of The Easy Bit, which is a new documentary that's currently looking for funding, but it's going to be made next year, hearing from guys talking about what they went through. And if you've heard any of my episodes in the past here on The Fertility Podcast, it's really, I think a vital part of what I do and I've had I'm really lucky actually to have had some guys willing to share their story so if you haven't subscribed you've just fallen across this podcast by chance you can do it in a number of ways if you're a fan of iTunes then go to iTunes put in the fertility podcast hit subscribe if you use Stitcher then you can also do it the same way tune in radio or Spreaker the fertility podcast is on there and it's on Acast and Audio Boom or you can just listen to it through the fertilitypodcast.com website. Now, I'm really trying for 2017 to get more of a community going. So I would love you to subscribe via my website to my email list. And hopefully I can keep you up to date with a really exciting project that I'm launching in 2017. So go ahead, give me your email. It's all I need, your email. And we will be in touch soon. Until the next time, take care.